In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave Himself up for us, who victoriously rose again from the dead on our behalf so that we might have life, I offer you greetings and welcome and good morning. Trust you are ready for a great time today as we seek to honor Christ, learning about how He's worked in history. Sorry for the slight delay, but we didn't want to be mean to those who are still standing in line paying indulgences so they can get into something like this. I think there's probably a lesson to be learned there. Uh, in all seriousness, I trust you'll have a great morning um, interacting with each other, being encouraged and encouraging others as well. We're going to sing four songs this morning, then I'll introduce our guest speaker. But before we do that, uh, let's ask God for His blessings. Father, thank You for Your loving kindness that You show to us in so many amazing ways. And for giving us a day like this where we can come and seek to learn more about how you've worked in history. And we are thankful that you have been so kind to show us even how you work and, and how over and over again throughout history you've raised up men and women who have had a passion for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again and again it has even been recovered and proclaimed and we are grateful because we know that faith comes by hearing so that we might believe in the Lord Jesus and be reconciled to you and growing. Lord, we would ask for your blessing upon our time today that you might encourage our speaker to love us by pointing us to Christ and that you might encourage us through that also. And Lord, now as we sing about your faithfulness, about your great gospel, about the great reconciling work of Jesus, Lord, may you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you haven't already heard, we do have stuff going on for kids. So if you have little kids, there's a whole thing on church history today for them. And uh, you have to go out in the hallway now and look for the big people uh, if you need to do that. But we do want to have your kids learning the same kinds of things we're learning and uh, be, allow you to be able to focus on what we're going to be learning. Well, it is a delight for me to introduce our guest speaker this morning. Dr. Stephen Nichols comes to us from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Lancaster Bible College. I realize I sound, Steve, I realize I sound like a Midwesterner when I say Lancaster, but uh, I am a Midwesterner, so you might have to give us some lessons on how to say that the right way. But it is a delight to have him here with us. Uh, by the grace of God, uh, Steve has become... Um, quote-unquote, the go-to guy, or is becoming the go-to guy when it comes to matters of church history these days, and uh, specifically matters of reformational church history. He's written on a broad range of topics relating to history. He's written a biography on Jonathan Edwards, a biography on Machen, a biography on Luther. He's written even on um, Jesus and pop culture. He's even written a book on the blues, what you learn about the gospel from the blues. Uh, most recently, he's written, on, uh, written a children's book, which is our favorite book in our house, and our kids like it too. But uh, for what it's worth, uh, it's a great little book. You'll have to ask him what will be next. Um, but I, I love his writing because it's not only historical, it not only seeks to point to Christ in his work in this world, uh, but it is very accessible uh, for people like me who went to public school. So uh, it's just very, very accessible, a little humor mixed in as well. One of my favorite quotations, and then we'll give him a good Cornhusker welcome, 
good thing he's not from Missouri. Um, if you're here from Missouri today, um, may the Lord bless you and uh, keep you. <laughs> One of my favorite quotations uh, is from his book on the Reformation, and uh, I'll read it now. Many churches celebrate Luther and his accomplishments on Reformation Day. It is a day about history, a time to remember what happened in the past. It is also about the present. It is about the power of the gospel to break through the noise and static of the world and to point to Christ. And we've asked him to come here to talk about church church history so that he might point us to Christ. And so let's welcome Stephen Nichols as he comes. I don't know about you, but I cannot sing There Is a Fountain without just a chill running up and down my spine. I just love that song. And when I think of that song, it was written by William Cooper. It's spelled C-O-W, but it's pronounced Cooper. And he talks about when when his stammering tongue is lying in the grave. And the grave of Cooper is a really fascinating grave. It's in a place called Bunhill Fields in England. It was the Burnt Hill Fields. It was the garbage dump of the city. And that's where the nonconformists, the Puritans, were buried. And in that cemetery, not too far from Cooper's uh, stammering tongue lying in that grave, is the grave of John Bunyan. And not too far from the grave of John Bunyan is the grave of John Owen. And not too far from there is the grave of the poet William Blake. So there are a lot of interesting tongues lying in that grave next to Cooper. But that song, There Is a Fountain Filled with Blood, where where we lose all our guilty stains. How can you not sing that and not just have a chill run up and down your spine? Thank you to the music folks. I think Dustin is, I didn't realize he was such a celebrity with his bulletproof (laughs) glass here. So I had no idea the greatness of your drummer. And thank you, Pat. I had a great time with Pat. Uh, We had dinner last night. And uh, he took me, he said, this is going to be the, you're in Omaha. I'm going to take you to the best place. So he took me to this place that had out on the outside of the sign, it said, uh, frozen custard butter burger. And it took me a while to realize that that was not one dish. I thought somehow they combined those two things and served it to you. Last night at dinner, Pat said um, a lot of nice things about me, very nice things about me even nicer things than what he told you. But then he said, but you know, there's something you don't know anything about. And uh, if it takes me all night, I'm going to teach you about this. And it did just take about all night. But last night, I finally learned everything I need to know about wakeboarding. (laughs) So I'm very grateful. do bring you greetings from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And, and, and uh, not too far from us in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we have a college. It's not the college I teach at, but it's a college that you know perhaps all too well, the College of Blue and White. I bring you greetings from Penn State. <laughs> you wear red. I'm wearing blue. 
I want to talk to you about church history. Bill Moyers, who's said a lot of dumb things over his career, every once in a while says something smart. And he said that Americans know everything there is to know about the events of the last 24 hours. And they know a few things that happened in the last 24 years. And they're virtually ignorant of what has occurred over the last 24 centuries. There's a saying, newer is better. But I've heard an even better saying recently. That's so five minutes ago. That's so five minutes ago. We live in an era that is suffering from the hubris of the present. That we think that in our moment, we have arrived through our technologies, through our advancements, that we just simply know better. And as a Christian, that is a very dangerous place to be. As a Christian, that cuts us off from the work of the Holy Spirit of the past. I know you like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, because I've heard some Spurgeon stories last night. So I know you've heard of the name Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I also know you had Phil Johnson here before. And Phil Johnson channels Charles Haddon Spurgeon. <laughs> he looks like Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he sounds like Charles Haddon Spurgeon. But Spurgeon once said, I find it odd that people who think so highly of what the Holy Spirit teaches them think so little of what the Holy Spirit teaches others also. And we have arrived at a point in time where we think almost that the Holy Spirit is our unique gift to our unique moment in the church. And the reality is that this thing we belong to, the body of Christ, not only runs around the globe, it also runs back in time and spans the centuries. And the Holy Spirit is not our unique gift. The Holy Spirit is the gift to the church through the centuries. And if all we have is our present moment, if we limit ourselves to the horizon of the present in order to understand what it means to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. I think we are cutting ourselves off from the riches of our past. And eventually, without resources to draw upon, we will shrivel up like a creek without any springs or without any sources. But if we let those sources go deep and go back into the past, then we won't shrivel up but we'll have these far broadening, widening horizons open up to us so that we can gain perspective and insight and inspiration on what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And there are some eras of church history that are worth more visiting than others. And one of those eras is the era that we're going to talk about together today and even a little bit tomorrow morning, the era of the Reformation. Now, it wasn't that the Reformers got everything right, but they certainly did have a lot going for them. There was reforms in church worship and music. They were missions-minded. Just a little evidence of this. In the 1550s, 
Calvin at Geneva sent missionaries to the shores of Brazil. Think about that. In the 1550s, the city of Geneva is sending missionaries to Brazil. They trained literally about a 1,000 pastors, came out of France, trained at Geneva, sent back into France, funded by Geneva, and started and established an underground network of churches. Church planners enclosed Catholic France from the city of Geneva. It was about worship. It was about missions. It was about the preaching of the word. We're going to talk about this a little bit now. We're going to talk about it tomorrow morning. And it was about the cross. That the cross had been obscured. You know, when you go to visit some famous site and you want to go see a building and they're doing remodeling or reconstruction work or renovation work and there's scaffolding around the building. And how disappointing it is. You don't go to see the scaffolding. You're there to see the building. And what had happened over the centuries of the Middle Ages is scaffolding had been built up around the cross. And the church built up its traditions around the cross. And what the reformers did was tear down that scaffolding so that people in the pew could see Christ and him crucified. When Luther died, his friend, the painter, uh, painted one last, Lucas Cronach, painted one last painting of Luther. And to me, it captures perfectly what the Reformation was all about. And it's on the altarpiece at the church at Wittenberg. And on the one side is Luther standing in the pulpit with an open Bible. And the pulpit was built up high in a wall. These are days of, of before there was amplification, these nice technologies that we have that project our voice. And so they build the pulpit up until the, up until the wall so his voice would project out. And there's Luther standing in the pulpit, open Bible, pointing out to his congregation. And in the middle, Cronach painted the congregation. And all eyes are looking up at Luther. He paints Luther's wife into the painting, Katie. Uh, he paints his friend, Melanchthon, his other friend, Justus Jonas, and all of his other associates. And they're all looking up at Luther. Cronach uh, even painted Luther's daughter, Magdalena, who had died as a 13-year-old. And it broke Luther's heart when she died. And Cronach, very cleverly, everyone's looking up at Luther. You see a profile except Magdalena. She's looking out at you looking out at the, at the audience, looking at the painting. And that's what Luther was all about, the preaching of the gospel. But what's fascinating is what is in the very middle of the painting. And in between Luther and his preaching and the congregation is Christ and him crucified. So that as Luther preaches, he preaches Christ. And as the congregation listens, they see Christ. And they see the gospel. And that's what the Reformation was all about. Now that was all for free. That was just an introduction. Now I'll try to stick to my outline. Mike very graciously put together for you these booklets. And the booklets follow a pattern where we'll have an outline, a little place if you want to take any notes or perhaps if your mind wanders. I'm, I teach undergrads, so I'm used to just about anything. So, so if your mind wanders, you have space to doodle. And then we have some quotes that we're going to look at together and some biblical texts, and it's all right there for you. And it warms my heart to see that you are an ESV congregation. I'm so glad that you have adopted the English superior version. <laughs> no lie, my 
state-issued license plate for our minivan. Yes, we have three kids, so we have a minivan. Pennsylvania, we have three letters and four numbers. And my state-issued license plate is ESV. It is of God. It is of God. Going to end us at Verms, or Worms, if you want to mispronounce it. I'm going to end us at Verms. And to get to Verms, we have to take a rather circuitous journey. And the punchline of Verms is one of the essential tenets of the Reformation, that God's word alone is the basis for the church. That Luther, and and we're going to talk about this tomorrow morning, Luther says we can spare everything. We can give it all up except the word as a church. You can strip it all away. And the absolute essential, the non-negotiable, is the word. But to see how this came about, we have to take a journey to get there. This long road to Worms actually begins up in, up in England, up in Great Britain. And up in Great Britain, in the 600s, there was a man by the name of Caedmon, is how we pronounce it, but you may know it as Caedmon. And maybe you've heard of the Christian uh, contemporary group Caedmon's Call. Caedmon's Call takes their name from this figure of church history, Caedmon. Caedmon was a monk. And he wanted to teach the English how to read, and he wanted to teach them the Bible And he was also a musician, and he thought, I'll teach them the Bible by teaching them how to sing the Bible. And he worked on translating some of the Psalms into Old English, the English of Beowulf. And he was somewhat successful at it. But the word spread around, eventually got back to the Vatican. And the decision was that this was an illegal move. And very quickly, the church put on the books that to translate the Bible, let this sink in, to translate the Bible into the vernacular, into a language of the people from Latin, is a capital offense. A heresy of a capital offense. There were three doctrines that were capital offenses. Three heresies. Something other than infant baptism. The denial of the deity of Christ and translating the Bible into the vernacular. What kind of a church wants to keep people from the Bible? Why would you want to keep people from access to God's Word? But from the 600s on, the laws were on the books to make it a capital crime to translate scripture. If we fast forward to the 1100s and into the early 1200s, we find Peter Waldo. Now everybody remembers where's Waldo, right? Where's Waldo? I'll tell you where Waldo is. Waldo is in France. Peter Waldo was in France. And long before we have the English Bible, Peter Waldo set about translating the New Testament into French from the Latin, not from the original languages, but from the Latin text into French. Peter Waldo also argued that there should be 
singing by the people. And for those two things, advocating congregational singing and and, uh, translating the Bible into the New Testament into French, Waldo was condemned as a heretic by the church and was martyred. And his followers, called the Valdensians, were scattered into the hill country and went underground. They will reemerge a few centuries later in the Reformation era as the Huguenots. But here's Peter Waldo and his sacrifice of his life to try to give the French people the word of God. And of course, we all know John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe is called the morning star of the Reformation. And he does the same thing. He tries to give the English people the word of God and translates the New Testament, again, from the Latin, but into English, and we have the Wycliffe Bible. Now, his students did the Old Testament, but we associate his name to it, and that's what I do. I don't actually write any of these books. I have my students do it, and then I just put my name to it, and it (laughs) works out quite well. But this is what Wycliffe did. And Wycliffe died of natural causes. Then he was condemned as a heretic, His body was exhumed and his bones were burned. Apparently to prove a point. And his ashes were spread into the river Cams. And his astute followers said, just as his ashes would be spread into the Cams, it would flow on into the Thames and then flow out through the channel and into the Atlantic Ocean and eventually around the far reaches of the globe, so too will Wycliffe's desire to see the Bible in the language of the people someday spread around the globe. And so we have the wonderful people at Wycliffe Bible Translators picking up that not only as an inspiration, but as an obligation to see to it that this prophecy at Wycliffe's, not his death, but at his burning of his bones, would someday come to fruition. But for all of these efforts, these folks were condemned as heretics. And their works, their translated works, were confiscated and burned to keep people from the Bible. While this road to Worms, circling all over Europe, takes yet an interesting turn at the city of Prague, Prague at the time was called Bohemia, now it's called the Czech Republic, and at Prague there was John Huss. Huss, in 1409, began preaching at Bethlehem Chapel, the Shepherd's Chapel in Prague. And at the Shepherd's Chapel, Huss advocated preaching in the Czech language, not in Latin, not just conducting the Mass, but preaching sermons in the Czech language. He did away with the clerical garb. He did away with the robe. I understand you wear a robe when you preach, Pat. So I have to get used to that for tomorrow, wearing a robe. (laughs) I won't repeat that. And congregational singing. And for those three things, he gets in trouble with the church. And the controversy rages for about five years. And eventually, in 1414, a council was called at the city of Constance in Germany, just over the border from Switzerland. And Huss's promised safe passage, which means he can go there, have a debate, and go back home. And when he gets there, the safe passages 
revoked. And there's no debate. He's put in a box in the cathedral. The cathedral's there, still there in Constance. It's a beautiful city. Lake Constance is on the tip of Lake Constance, so it's a bit of a resort town. It's got an old world feel to it and a new world. It actually was part of former East Germany. So it's got that history to it as well. And there in the cathedral, John Huss had to sit in a box while he was put on trial. No debate. He was asked a simple question. Will you recant? The same thing is going to happen to Luther a century later at Worms. And Huss refuses to do it. He thought he'd have a debate. He's thrown into prison. He will be martyred on July 6, 1415. But here's John Huss's life from December of 1414 to July 6. He's chained in a dungeon prison, fed very little, and only exposed to daylight when he was brought out, trotted down to the cathedral, and put on his box on display. The last seven months of his life, he suffered severely. When July 6 rolls around, Huss is condemned. The council met for all those months. They had a lot of work to do. And at the con- conclusion of the, can- of the council, they decide it's now time to martyr Huss. So they go to his prison. They release him from the dungeon. And because they are so civil, they cannot conduct martyrdoms within the city gates. So the martyrdom must occur about a mile outside of the city gates. So they walk through the city gate. The city gate is still standing there right now. You could go do the same walk that John Huss did. You could leave the prison. Now that house that was a prison is turned into a museum to Huss. You can walk the short way down the street and out the gate and take a turn and walk about a mile. And you come to what now is a traffic roundabout. And in the middle of that roundabout, there's a large stone commemorating the spot where John Huss was martyred in a plaque. And at that place, Huss gives his final words. You have them there for you on the quotes on the next page over. Somebody in the audience shouted out that Huss should be given his last confession. And the bishop who was presiding over the martyrdom said, a heretic is not worthy of a last confession. And so he denied him a confession. But he did allow him to speak. And this is what Huss said. O God and Lord, now the council condemns even thine own act and thine own law as heresy. These are bold words. It's not me you're condemning. It's God's word you're condemning. Since thou thyself didst lay thy cause before thy father as the just judge, as an example for us, whenever we are sorely oppressed. He's looking to Christ, who identifies with him. God is my witness that I have never taught that of which I have been accused by false witnesses, all these trumped up charges, and then this gets to the heart of what Trump, of what Huss was about. In the same truth of the gospel, which I have written, taught, and preached, I am ready to die today with gladness. In the same truth of the gospel. Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy upon me. What is unique about this? We'll talk about this in the next session. But what is unique about this? When Luther finds himself in a jam, we're going to see him at a thunderstorm. When he finds himself in a jam, 
Luther would never in a million years appeal to God, let alone to Christ. When Luther's in a jam, his, his reflexive reaction is to say, help me, Saint Anne. He, he wouldn't envision going to Christ. He must go to his patron saint to get to Christ. And here Huss discovers two principles that are going to be right at the center of what the Reformation was about. The centrality of the gospel and the centrality of Christ. No mediator. Christ have mercy. Not a saint. Not the church. Not the blessed sacrament. But Christ himself. What did the church do before Keith Getty wrote the song, In Christ Alone? I have no idea. How did we get along without that song, In Christ Alone? But that's what Huss stumbled on. Huss said something else, and this is fascinating. It's a bit of a prophecy. I have it over back on the outline. Huss said, you can kill the goose, but a hundred years from now will come the swan, and you won't be able to kill the swan. Now, he was playing off of his name. His name in Czech means goose. Huss means goose. And he was saying, you can kill me, but a hundred years from now, and I think he just sort of picked that number out of the sky, a few generations from now, the momentum is going to build. This thing that we've stumbled on, the gospel, is powerful. And it can't be hemmed in. And over time, the gospel will prevail over this church. And along will come the glorious swan, the beautiful swan, and you won't be able to kill it. Luther thought this was hilarious. Because almost a hundred years to the day, From 1415 to October 31st, 1517, Luther nails his 95 theses to the church door. 101 years and some months change. Luther comes onto the scene. But the reason he thought this was hilarious is, if you know anything about Luther, he was anything but a swan. If Huss had said, along will come the bull in the china shop and you won't be able to do anything about it, that would apply to Martin Luther. But not a swan. Swans are graceful creatures. Elegant creatures that glide along the water. Not Martin Luther. You knew Martin Luther was in the room when Martin Luther was in the room. But Luther came along in God's plan, in God's timing, through God's power. And the church was not able to prevail. Huss was right. You can kill the goose. You can kill the goose. But someday, someday will come the swan. Well, that's our road to Worms. We're not quite there yet because we've got to get Luther there. But Luther is born in November 10th, 1483. His father desires for him to go off and be a lawyer, so he sends him off to law school. 
Luther finished his law degrees that spring, was about to become a practicing attorney. By this time, his family had moved to Magdeburg. He was born in Eisleben. His family moves to Magdeburg. He goes uh, home to visit them. On his way back, he's caught in a thunderstorm. Now, Luther's a very intelligent guy. You have to take my word for it. But I'll give you one piece of evidence. In a span of six weeks, he translates the Greek New Testament into German. The Greek New Testament... There's a lot of chapters in the Greek. There's 27 books in the Greek New Testament. And there are a lot of chapters in those 27 books. And a lot of verses in those chapters in those 27 books. This is a prodigious, this is remarkable intellect. But here's something that I don't think was so smart. Luther's caught in a thunderstorm and what does he do? He finds a tree on top of a high hill and he goes and gets underneath it. And while he's under this tree in the middle of a thunderstorm, he feels as if God has unleashed the very heavens to take his soul. And Luther wraps his arms around a big old rock. At least he didn't grab onto a utility pole. (laughs) Wraps his arms around a big rock and he cries out, Help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. Two things are problematic with that. One is he thinks he needs a mediator to get to God. We already mentioned that. But here's the second thing that's problematic with that. Luther was under the impression that you could bargain with God. That you could cut a deal. That God was up for negotiations. That Luther would commit his life to achieving righteousness if God would but spare his soul by becoming a monk. In fact, Luther says at one time, if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, which I think he made that word up. That's what the Germans do. They just make up words as they go. If ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, I'm the monk. And he was a very devout monk. In fact, he drove his confessors nuts. His record was eight hours in the confessional. That would wear anybody down. And what his confessor finally said to him is, I know what we can do with this guy. Let's have him go get his theology degrees. Let's send him to seminary because he will be so distracted studying theology that he won't have time to think about spirituality. Oh, come on. That was a joke. You have to appreciate that joke. Let me say it again. But something happens to Luther while he's working on his theology degrees. In those days, to get his doctorate in theology, he had to study Lombard sentences. And as he's reading Lombard sentences, Lombard quotes Augustine. And nobody was going back and reading Augustine because the, the idea there was tradition. You just relied on the scholars to tell you what these sources said. We're far removed from Scripture. We're even far removed from the early church. It's commentaries on commentaries on commentaries on commentaries on Augustine or on the Bible that's being studied. But Luther cuts through all the chase and goes back and reads Augustine. And as he reads Augustine, he finds that Augustine quotes Paul a lot. And Luther starts reading Paul. And all you need to do is read Paul and things start happening. So Luther gets his degrees and from 1513 to 1517, he's teaching 
And these are the courses that he's teaching. Hebrews, Psalms, Galatians, and Romans. That's what he's teaching. But as he first starts teaching these, it's a classic example of two steps back. I'm sorry, one step forward and two steps back. Because as he's reading the Bible, he reaches a conclusion. He comes across these words in Romans chapter 1, that the gospel is the righteousness of God. And this bothers Luther. In fact, he says, I hate this righteous God. Because he demands of me righteousness, and yet I am unrighteous and a sinner. We've taken two steps back, haven't we? Now, I'll show you what happens next time, but I'm going to skip ahead. In all of this reading of Scripture, Luther recognizes something. He recognizes that the church has missed the boat, that the focus of the church has to be the focus of what John Huss says he's devoted his life to, the gospel which he has preached, which he has taught, and which he has written on. And Luther discovers this Reformation principle of sola scriptura. And it comes out at the Diet of Worms. And there he is at the Diet of Worms. Now, he had caused quite a stir in the Catholic Church. When he first published the 95 Theses, they caught the attention of the Pope. Here's what the Pope said. Ah, the ramblings of a drunken German. I was going to say, for some people, that's a redundancy, but that's rude. I won't (laughs) say that. I'm among friends. The ramblings of a drunken German, he will think differently when he sobers up. Well, Luther never sobered up. Early on, the Pope and Luther had a pretty good relationship. Pope uh, Luther wrote a letter to Pope Leo X and said to him, You're a good man. You have a corrupt church, though. And I wish you were a Pope at a better time. But then the relationship degenerated. <laughs> the Pope excommunicated Luther with his papal bull. I would say something there, too, but I won't. And it was entitled, Exerge Domine, Arise, O Lord, there is a wild boar, a loose in your vineyard, trampling underfoot the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. Luther is the wild boar trampling underfoot the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luther returns the favor by burning a picture of the Pope (laughs) along with the papal bull. And then he starts calling the Pope the Antichrist. This is definitely a breach in the relationship. (laughs) We've crossed the divide. Once you start calling someone the Antichrist, there's really no going back. So we're set for a showdown. This is all in the fall of 1520. We're set for a showdown, and the Pope demands that Luther be sent to Rome. And Frederick the Wise, the protector, the sort of prince over that region around Wittenberg, where Luther's hometown is, refuses. He's a German, and he will be tried on German soil. And we have the diet, the council, the meeting coming up, scheduled at Worms in the spring, and that's where Luther will be tried at the Diet of Worms. Luther goes in April, expecting a debate. This is take two of John Huss. 
Goes expecting a debate. Luther arrives. All his books are spread out, his pamphlets. And he'd written a lot already from 1517 to 1521. And they're all spread out on the table. And Luther's asked two questions, or three questions. Number one, are you Martin Luther? I guess to make that clear for the record. Yes, I'm Martin Luther. Are these your writings? Yes, these are your writings. These are my writings. Will you recant? Now, we always think of Luther as bold, brave, right in the face of any foe. But here's a piece where his humanity comes through. And Luther says, I need a day. I need a day. By his own account, he did not sleep that night. He huddled close to the candle on the table in the center of his room, and he prayed all night. What if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? I'm standing in the face of the entire church. And what if I'm wrong? But Luther held firm. His resolve held. And the next day he's brought back before the council. And Luther keeps trying to prod a debate out of them. And they won't give it to him. They want a simple up or down. Yes or no answer. And Luther says, here's the answer. And look at it. It's on your quote. It's on that same page with the Huss quote. Now Luther's not going to give a yes or no answer. He's going to give a couple paragraphs. <laughs> Here's what he says. Since your most serene majesty and your lordships seek a simple answer, I will give it in this manner, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason. For I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe for us nor open to us to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. And Luther's condemned as a heretic. But that's his stand. That's what starts us. We talk about the 95 Theses in the beginning of Protestantism, but here's where we find our roots. This principle of being bound to the Word of God. Now, I have a couple biblical texts there on the facing page for you, and we're going to look at these texts tomorrow, so I'm not going to steal any of my thunder from tomorrow. But I have them there for you to read and to look at in light of what the Reformers are coming up against. And there's the two texts there from Peter from the first chapter of his first epistle and from the first chapter of his second epistle. And Peter is telling the church something in these two texts. He's telling the church that at the center of what the church is about is the living and abiding and eternal word of God. So read those texts. But I do want to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 with you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Now, if you happen to have your Bible, especially if it's an ESV, you can look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to pick it up at verse 9. Paul had some tenuous relationships with some of his churches, but not with the church at Thessalonica, or Thessaloniki, as it's called today. This church Paul had a warm relationship with. From the beginning, 
he had a warm relationship with this church. And you can imagine Paul as he's writing this epistle and he's reminiscing about the time there and he's remembering these fond memories of his time with the people there. And his pastoral heart just comes out and spills all over the pages of his epistle. And here's what he says. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God, the proclamation of the gospel. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom in glory. That type of pastoral ministry is only possible when Christ is at work, both in pastor and in elders and in the congregation. That type of fondness is only possible when Christ is at work. That type of relationship is not something that we pull off naturally. But here's the verse I want to focus on with you. Verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men. Peter's going to talk about, if you look up in chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 1 of 2 Peter, Peter talks about, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. This is not the clever word of men. But you received it for what it is, he says. You received it for what it is, the word of God. And, and this word of God, right? Paul says, which is at work in you believers. There's three things here I want you to see. That you heard the word from us. And that's what the reformers were about. The preaching of the gospel. That's what Huss said he lived in and that's what he will die in. That's what Luther was about. How can I give the people under my care anything else but the word of God? To proclaim the word. Back, if we go back to Bunhill Fields and we take a field trip over there, that's what you need to do, take them on a field trip to Bunhill Fields. And you go to the Bunyan statue over his grave. Now, it's a, it's a 19th century statue over his grave, but it captures so well what John Bunyan was about. It's a picture that looks very much like Christian from his Pilgrim's Progress. And there's this statue, a, a life-size statue of a figure of a man carved on the top of his grave. And it looks like Christian right out of Pilgrim's Progress. And he's lying there and folded across his chest and, and prominently displayed in his hand is a Bible. And it's beautiful. Bunhill Fields is in a busy part of the city. At the time, it was outside of the city, but now the city's grown around it. And a lot, it's high rises are all around it. And, and Londoners cut through the cemetery to save some time going around the block. 
And when they cut through that cemetery, they walk right by John Bunyan's grave. And there he is, centuries later, holding forth the word of God. Go to the city of Basel in Switzerland, and at the cathedral in Basel, there's a statue of Echolampadius. Pat mentioned that I did an alphabet book. We chose O for John Owen. I wanted to do Echolampadius. I just had my, this vision of two and three-year-olds running around trying to say Echolampadius. <laughs> it just, I would love to see that. Outside the cathedral in the city of Basel, there's a statue of Echolampadius. And he's sort of like he's coming out of the cathedral wall. It's built up in this exterior wall. It's like he's coming out. And guess what's in his arm? A Bible. And underneath it has... Werbum Dei, the Word of God. That that's what those reformers did in life and that's what they're still doing in death. This is the Word that you heard from us. That was the apostolic mission. That is the pastoral mission. That was the reformational mission to proclaim the gospel. And Paul says, every one of us Every one of us is an ambassador, a minister of the gospel of reconciliation. Every single one of us should be about proclaiming the gospel. Second thing from this text is that it is the word of God. It is the word that is preached, firstly, and it is the word of God. We didn't write this thing. We didn't, it's not a bottom-up discussion or description of the world based on what we think the gods want us to live or want us to do. It is top down. It is revealed by God to us. He has given us His Word. What a remarkable thing that we are not left to grope in the darkness. In 2 Peter chapter 1, it says, You would do well to pay heed to this book. It is as a light shining in a dark place. And in one verse, he captures the whole thrust of Psalm 119. I guess before in Christ alone we had thy word. Where would we evangelicals be without thy word? A lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. But there's a third thing here, and I want to close with this. Third thing here. It is the Word of God that is at work within you. I'm going to move down to Geneva for a quick second. You know, when Calvin first went to Geneva, they kicked him out. In fact, they never referred to him as name in the council minutes. They called him that Frenchman. What a nice welcome. Call your pastor that Frenchman. Can't even call him John. They kick him out. And just before Calvin realizes he's going to be kicked out, he sends a letter. And he sends a letter to his friend, Martin Bootser. And in the letter he says, The people want preachers and not pastors. And that's why they're kicking me out. They want preachers and not pastors. Here's what Calvin was getting at. The pastoral concern 
Not that he shows up on Sunday and preaches a whiz-bang sermon that everybody feels great about. Which is what they were accustomed to. For centuries, you showed up, you took the mass, and you went home, and all was well with the world. Calvin was after a changed life. That the word of God would be preached. That it would take root deep in your life. And it would grow. And it would work itself out. And you would be a living epistle. That you would read the word. That you would love the word. That you would desire the word. As the psalmist says. And that you would live the word. The reformers were about the gospel. Taking deep root in the lives of people. And transforming them. Changing them. And that's what Paul says the word does. It works us over. Luther says that the word of God assaults us. It assaults us. And there's a lot we don't like. I gave up reading the book of James. I just don't read it anymore. It's just too hard to follow, so I just avoid it. I'm playing with you. But you know what I'm saying, sort of. But you know what I'm saying. (laughs) We read parts of this, and it's like the sculptor taking the chisel and the hammer on the rough edge and giving it a whack. That's what the word of God at work in us means. But when Luther said the word of God assaults us, he followed it up with this, and the word of God comforts us. Because the word of God at work in us is just not the ouch, rough, hammering away at the rough spots. It's also the word of God that speaks to us at our deepest and most profound need. And it speaks truth to that need. And it points us to where we need to go. It is the word of God. It is the very words of eternal life. And it is the word of God that was preached to us. Don't ever, don't ever cease to give gratitude that you can feast on the Word of God. Not everybody has that privilege. Not everybody has that privilege. It is the Word of God that is preached to you, and it is the Word of God that is at work in you. And that's what the Reformation was all about. That's what sola scriptura means. There's a scene from the old black and white movie of Luther. And in that scene, Luther is to commemorate the relics at the cathedral at Wittenberg. And he's asked to give the dedicatory prayer And when they turn to Luther to give the dedicatory prayer, it's an embarrassing moment because Luther's gone. And finally, they meet up with Luther in his room. 
And they ask him, Luther, where'd you go? What's wrong? And the movie presents the idea that Luther is troubled by all this stuff, the relics. And he says, I, I just don't think this is right. It's not in scripture, these relics that we talk about. And the bishop says to him, if you take away the relics, what will the people have? If you take away the saints, what will the people have? And Luther says this, I will give them Christ and his word. I will give them Christ and his word. That's what we have as the people of God. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for this word that you have given to us. We thank you for how it meets us precisely where we are, how it speaks so truthfully to our lives. We thank you that we can look back in the past and see this glorious moment where the power of the word of God was unleashed and the gospel spread and lives were changed. And we know that this is the exact same word that we hold in our hands. And we pray that this word would be deeply rooted in our lives, that we would be a changed people, that we would live out this glorious gospel. May you be gracious to us and grant that to us. We pray these things through the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.